Okay. Uh, yes, so there's a small walls, but relating to the New Testament, as I say. Um, quote from Lee Strobel, it puts it quite well, but it's basically making the point that, uh, as, as with last time, the kind of caveat is... Um, it's not one of those areas where you're ever, ever going to get proof of something the Bible says, or at least very rarely. What you mainly get is a probable corroboration of one aspect of what the Bible says. Um, but the more of that you keep coming across, on the one hand, and in the other hand there being an absence of things that contradict what the Bible says, the more it builds up the case of trusting it, uh, including the case of trusting it in the cases that you haven't been able to, to check or prove. Because again, just because you haven't dug it up doesn't mean it's not there. It just means someone's living on top of it. <laughs> doesn't want you digging through their garden or their mosque or whatever. You know. uh, or that it was there and people then dismantled it to rebuild something else out of. Or, you know, the sort of stuff that happens in, in history. Um... So I like dividing that, this up into some, some basic categories. Yes, yeah, so it is indeed the British Museum. Uh, and it's a, a lion um, in the British Museum that was uh, at one of the seaports that St Paul went to. It was like on like the sort of uh, looking out over the seaport. And St Paul would have seen that lion if he was looking in the right direction. <laughs> you know. it's not being sick. Not being sick. Yeah. yeah. That's right. Uh, so sometimes you get artifacts that, that relate to culture, people's beliefs and practices. That sort of back up the Bible. Uh, places from entire cities to specific buildings, and then people. Uh, well, it's aspects of like um, uh, the kind of names that people had versus the kind of names that people look at the Bible. People go into all sorts of very interesting statistics on, um, from all the ossuaries we've dug up, from that, but the bone boxes we've dug up, what is the frequency of the sort of names that people have? Uh, would someone who was writing um, in, a dif- in a different place or at a different time, so a couple of hundred years later, have access to that information? Probably not. So if we look at the Gospels and see that the frequency of the names of characters matches the, the data we have from the archaeology, it would seem to indicate that the, what was written in the Gospels was written by someone who knew the culture at the time, rather than made up a couple, you know, you know, made up hundreds of years later by, by people who were just, you know, didn't know nothing. Um, so you can get interesting arguments like that. Um, the sort of official titles of, of various political leaders and so on and uh, sometimes even down to family relationships. Got some very interesting stuff. Um, on the culture side, stop now, I can skip over this if you've, you've, you've heard this before, but my re- refuting of Dan Brown just from archaeology, where he says the whole thing about people didn't start off believing that Jesus was divine, that only happened in the 4th century. Um, and there's various archaeological things that you can point to that completely undermine that without getting out your Bible at all, arguing about when it was, when it was written. Um, so he says, basically, the establishment of Jesus as the Son of God was proposed and voted on at the Council of Nicaea, which happened in 325 AD. And before that, Jesus was just this good prophet, human prophet kind of thing. Um, now, this 
is a wall painting. It's a little bit fuzzy. It's the best picture I could get of it. Obviously, it's very old. Um, it dates from about 235 AD, this wall painting. So, 100 years before the Council of Nicaea. And when you study it, it's pretty clearly a depiction of the miracle of Jesus healing the paralytic and his bed. So you have here uh, the guy on his very literally taken bed and a figure standing next to him pointing at him. And you have next to him the guy, same guy, now carrying his bed. Can you make that out? So it's one of those pictures where it's shown the progression in the same image. So it's clearly referring to Jesus healing the, the, the paralytic on the bed. Of course, when you compare that to the telling of that story in Mark, the important thing about that story is Jesus' forgiving of the sins and putting himself in the place of God and then all saying that's blasphemous and so on. Um, and it's obviously that story that this is is relating to. So odds are, here we've got an indication that at least a hundred years before the Council of Nicaea, that it was a well-known story about Jesus that he healed this paralytic. And what's the, the punchline of that story is all about him claiming to be divine. So the idea that Jesus was divine, at least, you know, whether or not that goes back to Jesus or any of that, but the idea clearly predates the Council of Nicaea by about a hundred years at least. Um, now this I love um, this is a find dating to about 230 AD at uh, Megiddo uh, yes uh, Megiddo uh, so there's uh, Sea of Galilee, Nazareth and then uh, Megiddo and there's a bit of a reconstruction of here what there really is is basically the floor of this building which they reckon is an early Christian meeting house or prayer hall or what have you. And you have a plinth that had a table on top of it, probably for having communion on, in the centre of the room, which has a couple of um, uh, mosaic frescoes with some, and some writing on them. Um, here's a bit of a closer-up image. First of all, notice in this picture over here, you've got picture images of fish which, of course, you know, is an early Christian symbol, because um, the Greek for fish, uh, ichthus, um, was a, a, an acronym that, that stood for um, Jesus Christ, Lord, um, Saviour. And it was the early underground Christian sign, sort of uh, draw a fish in the sand and quickly you know, cover it over so the soldiers don't see it or whatever. Um, because uh, the Roman Empire is down on that kind of thing. But if you want to know that someone else is a Christian, you, you draw a fish, because it's Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. Um, so the fact that there are fish in this hall could indicate uh, uh, that kind of meaning. Um, but more significant, actually, is this mosaic on the other side. And here's a close-up of the inscription that's right, written in there. And it's about... Uh, basically, it's an inscription from the person who donated the, the table for the communion. It's like, I, I paid for this organ, or whatever, you know. Um, and this inscription reads, The God-loving Keptus has offered the table to the God, Jesus Christ. The God, Jesus Christ. 
Um, so there's someone, at least 100 years before the Council of Nicaea, who thought that Jesus was God. <laughs> and finally, this is called the Alapsaminos Graffito, um, graffito being Latin for graffiti. Uh, it's from, uh, well, nobody really seems to know. I've read it over a whole range of dates for this, between the 1st and the 3rd century, but it's pre-Council of Nicaea, anyway. Uh, now, let's see if we can mate out here. You have here uh, a figure on a cross with a donkey head. Which is about to say that Yeah. Didn't it? Uh, yeah, okay. so am I. <laughs> yes. So it's depicting someone who's crucified... that section of the New Testament. Someone who's being crucified, being represented as an ass, and a figure below looking up at the figure on the cross with a sort of arm up here, and then this in Latin uh, reads, Alexaminos worships God. So they reckon it's one, probably one Roman soldier where they were stationed taking the mickey out of another Roman soldier who was a Christian, saying, ha ha, he worships some crucified criminal bloke as God. What, what an idiot. You know? um, but clearly, completely undermines the notion that the, this, the idea that Jesus was divine was something foisted much later, uh, or voted on the Council of Nicaea. So that's a stick that in your pipe and smoke it down brown. Can I just ask yeah. you a quick question? Mm. Is general, because I read the Da Vinci Code and mm. all its claims yeah. as being nothing more than a good story. I just thought it was a work of fiction. Yeah, that's, that's how I read it. Did he write it? Mm. Is he an atheist? Was he writing it to undermine? Because right? if you read the others in his series, yeah. they're all written in exactly the same way. And I always, I read it in the Dean's and the others as. Of 
every couple of decades a book comes out about that all the connection between Jesus and the Holy Grail and the Knights Templar and this, that and the other um, that are put forward by conspiracy theorists, basically. Yeah. Um, so I'll say, I mean, you can, obviously you can read it and take it just as a work of fiction, but... It's that, yeah. yeah, it is that page at the front of it. Yeah. By the way, it's true. Yeah. It's not true. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> now, this is, was a very significant find. This is uh, poor... Please tell me that's not a limb with a nail for it. This is a limb with a nail for it. This is the 18 certificate presentation. Uh, <laughs> this is uh, Johannan. <laughs> dug up in 1968. Um, they took about 35 bodies out of an ancient burial site, and this is Johannan ben Hagalgol, uh, and that was the bone box that he came out from. Uh, and he had a seven-inch nail driven through both feet, and his legs were broken. One nail through each foot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, his legs were crushed or broken. There's an argument over whether you know it happened later or did it happen during a crucifixion, given that he's got these nails through the the thing, but uh, it's consistent with the Roman um, breaking the legs so you can't breathe. But maybe that didn't happen. But certainly what we have here is someone who was crucified who had nails put through his limbs and significantly was buried in, a, in an ossuary. Because one of the um, theories, particularly in sort of Jesus Seminar uh, sort of territory, some people, some scholars will say um, Jesus wouldn't have been given an honourable burial. If you were crucified as a criminal, you would have just been thrown into the common um, pit and Jesus' body would have been eaten by dogs. And that was what would normally happen. Um, and indeed, that may be what normally happened. And of course, the, the New Testament says that uh, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus went out of their way to give Jesus a proper burial. But here's another instance of someone who was clearly crucified by the Romans... Who, who had a proper burial. So you can say, well, we know of at least... And this is the only other... This is the only crucifixion victim that we've dug up. Right. <laughs> um, possibly because... The possibly because all the others were, indeed. Yes. But, uh, it, it, you know, that's the only one we dug up. Maybe there are others that we haven't, but on at least one other occasion... <laughs> So it is clearly possible for crucified people to have decent burials. Yeah. Kind of, yeah. And we know the name of this poor person because presumably it's on the outside yeah, of the box. on the outside of the box, yeah. yeah. Uh, you would, yes, normally write that the person and the you know, son of so-and-so in the box. So you didn't get it confused with you, you know, whose bones was, was whose. Uh, now, this is a big chunk of stone with an inscription on it called the Natherus Stone, the Natherus Decree. Uh, it, it was found in the 19th century uh, in or near Natherus. I can't ever pronounce Nazareth correctly. Uh, it's got an inscription, a decree from the Emperor Claudius on it. And he was reigning in about AD 41-54. So just um, 10 to 20-30 years after crucifixion. And it says basically, in summary, that no graves should be disturbed or bodies extracted or removed from graves with the offender being punished by capital punishment. It's basically upping the punishment for grave robbery. Um, 
Now, it's interesting that you should find a imperial decree upping the punishment for grave robbery in the home place of the one person who is alleged to have been resurrected and left behind an empty tomb behind him, of which you know, it's probably quite obvious, and the Jews did, as the New Testament says at the time, so the disciples stole the body as the explanation for the thing. Um, and again, now you know, that's an, inter- that's an interpretation yeah. of the find. It seemed quite a plausible one, but you'll find people arguing about that interpretation. All you've got, obviously, is the chunk of rock. It says don't do it. It says don't do it, and I've raised I've raised the penalty for it. But then oh, you can say, well, that that yes, uh, um, good, good question. Don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, but that we have this chunk of rock that says that that was found where it was, yeah. kind of indicates at the kind of time. Um, yeah, so yeah, you get a lot of that in archaeology. Kind of mm, that's interesting. Maybe yeah. Mm. Okay, uh, section on places from the New Testament, uh, British Museum. Have you, have you been to the British Museum? It's an amazing place. I always, uh, if I get an opportunity to go there, I go to the, um, the sort of ancient Babylonian, Assyrian stuff. They've got some fantastic stuff from the Bible times there. It's amazing what we nicked from around the world. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Can we have our marbles back? Yes. No. It's amazing, it's half stuck in there, though. Uh, this was found, um, or reported on, uh, just before Christmas 2010. Um, and it's a series of small walls, as you can see, uh, from Natherth. Uh According to the excavation director, she says the discovery is of the utmost importance since it reveals for the very first time a house from the Jewish village of Natherth. Before they'd found some, like, um, olive presses and a, and a graveyard and indications that there had been a settlement there of some kind, but they hadn't actually dug up any houses before. Uh, first at a time, a house from the Jewish village of Nazareth, and thereby sheds lights on the way of life at the time of Jesus. And why do they think that area is Nazareth? Do you know? Nazareth, Nazareth today? Yes, it's in continuity with... Right. So this is probably in some more person's back yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think it's on a chunk of land owned by the Church of the Annunciation, actually. So, um, so they were allowed to dig there. Yeah. Only on the condition that you find Jesus' house. Oh, you must, yeah. And again, you know, there's nothing to say that it was Jesus' house, or, uh, but the... They do, yes. They do think that it is a house. And, and again, I've seen some debate. Is this, is this definitely from the first century? Or could it be from the second century? Um, it's things like, do you find distinctive pottery in the same area? From the same kind of level um, that you can date to that period? Or coins, particularly useful because coins are minted with the reign of whoever was in charge at the time, uh, and you know the the, the newest coin that you had would be the upper limit of the dating that you 
come to, perhaps, or that kind of thing. Um, and carbon dating, yes. I don't know if they have that here, but they use various different methods. Some of it's to do with how how far you, you dug down and what kind of different civilization layers you got to. Some of it is different things that you can date of the finds, and it's often pottery and coins are the main ones that you, you tend to see mentioned. Going off of the slight tangent, how do they do carbon dating? Well, actually, is it? are you looking for the radioactivity of different isotopes? Yes, because they decay, they decay at different, yeah, different half-lives, different rates. So if you find something uh, and you can measure... So it is relatively... I think it depends on the time period that you're looking right. at. Yeah. So it would be like 100 to 1,000 years out. Right. Sort of thing, so <laughs> the, the error bar becomes yeah, more significant. Yeah. Capernaum, which features an awful lot yeah, in the New Testament... Uh, this is the synagogue at Capernaum, but this is this is not the one that Jesus would have known. But it does seem to have been built on top of the one that Jesus would have known. This black basalt um, layer down here is probably the foundations of the synagogue was there at the time of, of Jesus, which then had a more modern one. They they upgraded some years later, and built, but they built on top of the foundations that were already there. Uh, and it would be strange for them to, for, to change usage that these things tend to have continuity. So it's probable that this synagogue was built on top of the synagogue before that was built on top of the... and, and so on. Uh, and of course that's mentioned in various Gospels. Uh, Peter's house in Capernaum. Uh, it's a bit of a strange picture because there's, there's now been built on top of this house a sort of strange concrete 1960s sort of UFO structure. There's a viewing platform uh, above it. So this <laughs> is a. <laughs> that's not Peter's house. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's not, you know. Don't, Peter didn't live in this concrete UFO. <laughs> he lived in the thing that's kind of squatting above, uh, which makes it look very weird. Um, but basically, it's. Indications again, the rem- there was the remains of an octagonal 5th century church. Uh, and in the late 60s, archaeologists re- discovered the remains of an earlier church underneath that 5th century church. Uh, that had been built around what was originally a private house from the, from the area. Uh, and one room of that private house showed signs of being used as a meeting place during the second half of the first century. Um, and the walls, the walls of that particular room had been plastered. <laughs> and there were prayers scratched into the plasterwork of this room of the house that mentioned the name of Jesus and Peter. Um, and the four, it, was, it seems that in the 4th century that, that house church had been enlarged and then enclosed in a wall of its own compound and then they built a church around it in the 5th century and then they built... Yeah. UFO in 1960. <laughs> UFO in 1960. So there's this continuity of, of kind of remembering this, this site going back to a converted 1st century house that's got the names of Jesus and Peter scratched into the walls, evidently. Um, and it's also, it was mentioned in the 4th century by uh, Agiria, who was uh, the mother of the Emperor Constantine, who was the first um, emperor to say he was Christian, and we're all going to be Christians now, whether or not he was actually converted, who knows. Um, but she went on, like, she, she started off the whole thing for doing pilgrimages 
visited the Holy Land and um, says that in Capernaum the house of the Prince of the Apostles has been made into a church with its original walls still standing. It was here where the Lord cured the paralytic. Going back to what we had earlier. So it was being pointed out in the 4th century as this is where where that happened. Uh, So signs are probably that's where it happened. Uh, Paul of Bethesda mentioned in John 5 and this, this, this was one of the things that sort of 19th century sceptical theologians used to say things like there you go, see John was written hundreds of years after uh, the first century and he doesn't know what he's going on about and he mentioned this Paul of Bethesda which doesn't even exist no evidence that it exists at all uh, well there wasn't until we dug it up um, <laughs> Uh, absence of evidence is not evidence of, of absence, they'd say. So John 5 describes this pool near the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem called Bethesda that's surrounded by five covered colonnades. So it's very, a very specific description. Um, you know, either, either, either you're putting in that kind of detail to fool people into thinking that you know what you're talking about, or you really know what you're talking about. Um, and since we've dug the thing up... <laughs> Here is the pool of Bethesda, and you can just about make out here. Um, here's this is water at the bottom here. It's a whole sort of bathing complex, but you can make out here the colonnades, uh, and there are five. Sort of thing that would be worthy of a mention. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, it's pretty big to really just. Paint. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, could have just been filled in and. Is it in the the right? It's in the right place. It's got the right number of. That's how you can say. Well, you know, what are the chances that there would just happen to be in the same sort of area a bathing complex with five covered colonnades? Actually, maybe John knew what he was talking about. Uh, now this is a more recent one, the Pool of Siloam. Uh, when I did the Old Testament archaeology one, I talked about Hezekiah's tunnel that he built to bring water in from the outside, and there's a little pool uh, just on the inside of Hezekiah's tunnel that there was a sort of fifth-century church above, and so on. And for ages, people thought that that little pool just inside Hezekiah's tunnel to the city was the Pool of Siloam, um, but we've now discovered that it wasn't. Uh, because that source of water continues flowing, and they were doing um, some um, works on the sewerage system in 2004, and they stumbled across a huge bathing pool that they now reckon, aha, that's the pool of Siloam, and again, dated by coins and pottery and all of this. Um, They just, first of all, doing the, the work, stumbled across some steps. You can see this steps complex, but the steps led down a series of steps to the water from Hezekiah's tunnels flows into down the bottom here. And actually it was a sort of courtyard, a, a square thing, with steps all the way down to a ritual bathing pool. Um, you can see the water at the bottom here. Dating it from, look, coins and pottery. <laughs> like, look, we've got And so this is the sewage, this is the sewage pipe that they were replacing 
Yeah, and then they stumbled across these steps. Like, oh, where would these steps go? Oh, quick, digging, digging water, and so on. So they reckon that this is actually the, the pool of Siloam. Shame they couldn't move the sewage pipe. It's got to go somewhere. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and that's about the idea of the maintenance, right, which implies that when it was built, no one noticed. No! <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't quite dig far enough in, in the right direction. You can just imagine, can't you, like they've got the JCB there. Yes. Um, yeah. 
but if you dug it up here and now with the Colosseum with, with the coin with the Colosseum you could say yeah the Colosseum is roughly that old yeah you know? yeah people uh, if you took just two verses from Luke this is a great verse Luke, Luke 3 chapter, uh, verses 1 to 2 you get about uh, five or six specific names and titles of political leaders from the time. Very specific historical placing. And there's loads of archaeology that relates to all of those people that bear out not only the names and the positions and the title that's being used and so on. Um, so again, you know, Caesar, his coins and his busts. Pontius Pilate is mentioned. Uh, in the 60s they dug up a, a stone uh, that was dedicating uh, a building um, and it said basically um, Tiberius Tius Pilatus uh, Prefectus erected this building in, in honour of Emperor so-and-so um, but it's clearly a stone mentioning someone called Pilate who was prefect his title, the name at the right date to, to tie in um, Herod the Great we've got loads of stuff um, from coins and so on um, even um, these are like wine jugs or that kind of thing um, they're called ostracons and they have written on them you know, this belongs to um, Herod the Great, King of the Jews and the same title that's used in the New Testament of him um, Herod the Great, King of the Jews uh, Herodium, this, this is absolutely an astonishing place, Herodium. It's a man-made mountain fortress. Um, I think they may have, like a, may have built on top of an existing thing, but it's actually a huge complex uh, built in 23 BC on top of a natural hill. It's got seven stories of, of structure. Um, storage area systems, a bath house, a courtyard that would have been filled with bushes and flowers. It had a sort of garden in it. This courtyard here uh, had a garden. You can see a bit closer up there the, so into the structure. So that's a bit you walk up there. So you walk up, up here. Here's the walls. And there you can just see there's a round tower, various towers around it. Seven stories of structure built into it. And this is the courtyard that you're seeing a close-up of here. Yeah, down into the, the mountain and also up on top. So the seven stories of structure. Um, it's got this huge place. And um, 2007, this is uh, Ehud Netzer from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem announcing the discovery of Herod's tomb. They've known from other sources that he was buried... Um, at this place but they hadn't actually found it even though they had sources that say he was, this is where he was buried but in 2007 his team located where the tomb was location of Herod's tomb at the bottom there there it is being dug up and here he is with a, a bit of the sarcophagus that Herod the Great was, was buried in and this is a sort of reconstruction of the sarcophagus that Herod was, was buried in. Uh, Lysanias, this character called Lysanias. Scholars said, and again, take their 
uh, empirical necks in hand. Luke didn't know what he was talking about because everybody knew that there was a character called Licinius, but he was not, as Luke said, a tetrarch, but rather the ruler of Calchas half a century earlier than Luke places him. You know, Luke's got it wrong. But <laughs> an inscription was later found from the time of Tiberius, from the right time, which names Licinius as Tetrarch in Albion near Damascus. Just as Luke said, there'd been two government officials with the same name. <laughs> and everyone said, well, we know of this government official, but he's in the wrong place. Luke got it wrong. There was another guy. <laughs> it's the same name. What? <laughs> Um, Caiaphas, the high priest at Jesus' trial, he rends his clothes and said, yeah, he's committed blasphemy, what else do we need to hear, and so on. Um, this is his bone box from the family team. And it's got Caiaphas, yeah, Yosef Bar Caiaphas on it. Uh, this has been the subject of a lot of controversy over the last years, and a court case, and all sorts of things in Israel, and a whole battle over is it genuine or not. Um, I'm siding in the court case collapsed, and I'm siding with the it probably is genuine crowd um, when we get to Jesus' Austria. Now, this one's Alexander of Cyrene. Ah. Okay, so you know. Um, when Jesus is carrying the cross and he stumbles and the guards say, oh, you, come and carry the cross. And it's Alexander of Cyrene uh, mentioned in Matthew and Luke. And Simon had sons called Alexander and Rufus, according to Mark. Uh, 1941, they uh, found a tomb in the Kidron Valley, dated again by pottery to the first century. And they unearthed this tomb and it's got 11 ossuaries in it bearing loads of names and family descriptions and things. Uh, some of those names were particularly common in Cyrenesia, where Simon of Cyrene is going to be from. And the inscription on one of these ossuaries says, Alexandros, son of Simon. Remember, Simon has got sons Alexander, Rufus. Uh, on the lid of another ossuary, there's an inscription, uh, Alexandros in Greek, and then Hebrew writing, which doesn't actually seem to mean anything, probably misspelt, uh, because it's only one letter away from the Hebrew for Cyrenian, uh, if they got one of the letters wrong. Um, so archaeologist Tom Powers in Biblical Archaeology Review says, considering how uncommon the name Alexander was, it's an uncommon name, note that the Osiris inscription lifts him in the same relationship to Simon that the New Testament does, and we call the burial caves, contains the remains of people from Cyrenesia. The chances that the Simon on the Osprey refers to the Simon of Cyrene mentioned in the Gospels seems very likely. The Bar Sabbas family. Uh, so this is putting together two bits from Acts. Uh, once Judas has killed himself, remember they say, we need to have another 12th disciple, someone who's been there from the beginning and seen it all as one of the, the 12. And they proposed two men, Joseph, called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Uh, and the lots fell to Matthias. So they, he was added. And Acts 15 talks about um, sending some guys to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, and they chose Judas, called Barsabbas. There's another Barsabbas and Silas.
Now, uh, again, Israeli archaeologists uncover a first century tomb in the mountains off the Kidron Valley. Uh, and there are ossuaries in it bearing signs of crosses. And the inscriptions identify the cave as the tomb of the Barsabbas family. Uh, at least some members of this family were among the very first disciples of Christ, says one professor. Uh, the ossuaries included the name Simon Barsabbas, which is the Hebrew version of Simon Barsabbas. Mary, daughter of Simon. Maybe, who knows, one of the several Marys mentioned in the New Testament, because there are quite a few Marys, and amongst the group. Uh, Joseph Barsabbas. And the other candidate from Acts, Matthias, might have actually belonged to the same family. Because one of the other boxes in the cave carried the name, the, um, the Hebrew version of Matthias. Everyone, because it was kind of multilingual, because it's a Hebrew name, but everyone had like a, a Roman, a, a Greek name, and a Hebrew name, uh, which makes it a bit complicated. But that might actually tell us, given that it's one, it, it, it's one family and the other characters, that the, the Matthias who's mentioned might actually be another family relation of some kind. Um... And another son of Saba in here was Judah, the Greek Judas Barsabbas. So remembering that we have uh, Judas called Barsabbas in Acts 15, this case puts all of those names together. Uh, so that's quite a very interesting kind of, yes, these relationships of the, these people who are mentioned offhand. And in several sort of unrelated passages, as it were, uh, do indeed seem to have been real people. Oh, that's quite interesting. Yeah, okay, this is uh, Mazar, one of the archaeologists. The impact of these fascinating discoveries is multiplied when we consider the additional evidence found in the tomb, such as coins, coins, and artifacts. Clearly show the tomb was hermetically sealed less than a decade after the crucifixion of Christ. Um, this is years before any part of the New Testament was written proving that the scriptures are consistent with the archaeological e evidence. So it couldn't have been that someone knew that these names were all together in here. Oh, I'll put them all together in my, in my book, that will fool people. Um, because it was sealed and long before the New Testament was written. Yeah. Okay. This is the, the controversial ossuary that had the court case about it and everything. Uh, but it's an ossuary that has the inscription on it, James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus, uh, in Aramaic. Uh, it's a mid-first century AD chalk ossuary discovered in 2002. James, brother of Jesus, we know from Josephus, was martyred as a Christian in AD 62, so mid-first century. Um, there's a whole book you can read on it by Herschel Shanks and Ben Witherington III. Uh, it has to be American. <laughs> definitely. Uh, Herschel Shanks is the editor uh, and chief of the Biblical Archaeology Review, which is a. So uh, he's got quite a lot of peer reviews. Yeah. yeah so it's a, it's a peer review archaeology journal. You can find it on the inter on the internet. Um, he says this box is more likely than not the ossuary of James, the brother of Jesus of Nazareth. It, it was. As I said earlier, it's usual to put, this is so-and-so, son of so-and-so. 
but quite unusual to put, I, I, you know, this is so-and-so, son of so-and-so, brother of so-and-so. Why do you mention the brother of unless the, you know, if you have a famous brother, you might mention it. Um, so he says... Say, well, people saying that actually it's not... Yes, well... Was Jesus it's, a popular name? Jesus was a popular name, um, I think, yes. And James, but the fact that you've got three from the right date... Uh, and the fact that it's unusual to mention uh, uh, brothers rather than just to say son of so-and-so. Um, the, uh, everyone, I think, agrees that the, the ossuary is from that date. The debate has been over whether or not the inscription um, had, been, had the brother, uh, brother of Jesus added to it so that part of the inscription might be original and authentic, and part of it not. Um, and again, now, I'm no expert on, on this, but you'll find experts all, on all sides. But there was a, a, a court case about it alleging that it was a, a fake, and that collapsed. Um, and these guys that I've read, and you know, you read one side of a thing, it always seems persuasive, and you read the other side as well. But from the reading around it that I've done, I, I'm like pretty, but... You know, it might not be, but that, that's always the way with this archaeology kind of stuff. I just, I just wonder, it's funny, isn't it, because there must be loads and loads and loads of archaeological finds that could or could not be things. Yeah? Oh, yeah. But how many get as far as having a court case about yes. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, because this one is such a landmark... Yes. Exactly. Yes. Because it's such a landmark thing, it's almost like... The, the level of critical kind of scepticism and, and scrutiny goes up because the yeah. stakes are higher. Yeah. People are much yeah. more much more sceptical about anything relating to the Bible yeah. than about something related to other history. Yeah. 